This is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. And as always, I like to remind you that you can reach us at heartstockradio at gmail.com. You can also find us on social media. We usually post our up-and-coming guests. And speaking of which, this week, our guest is Michael Bowman. And he is an industrial hemp advocate and expert in just a moment. He'll be with us and tell us all about what he is up to. Uh, This is one of my most favorite subjects to talk about. In just a moment, we will be back with Michael. I'm Carol Murphy, your host, and Daniel Hogan is in the studio. We'll be right back. Welcome. This is Heartstock Radio. I'm Carol Murphy, your host, and our guest today is Michael Bowman, and he is a industrial hemp expert. And I'm sure there's many other titles, <laughs> as with most of our guests these days, it seems. Hi, Michael. How are you? Oh, good morning, Carol. How are you? We were just talking about our our geography here. Um, you're typically located in Colorado, where I know there's a lot of stuff going on in the hemp world, as there is here in Montana. So let's just start out by kind of talking about hemp for in your life. Well, sure. It's my it's my favorite thing to talk about. So <laughs> I'm I'm so glad we got together today. Uh, you know, I was uh, born and raised on our, my family's uh, farming and, and uh, agricultural operations in eastern Colorado, and and uh, had the opportunity to to really spend a lot of time on earlier. 20 years ago on soils and sustainability. I was really interested in soil carbon back before carbon sinks were even a thing and you know different crops and rotations. And so I had the opportunity in the winter months in our downtime to, to spend time in Zimbabwe with Alan Savory, who is a you know kind of a world leader on rebuilding soils, regenerating our soils, and and uh, really, really uh, just enjoy Alan's work. And uh, and you know, and during that time, I, I spent time in Zimbabwe. And one one uh, fateful evening around the campfire, there was a couple from Australia who were spending the evening with us in the in the campground, and they were sharing their story about being being in India just prior to uh, Zimbabwe, and and some of the upheaval that was going on with Indian farmers there, as they were there was a somewhat of a forced transition from uh, hemp growing uh, into uh, into cotton GMO cotton. And uh, that 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 upheaval was 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 really leading to a lot of suicides and and uh, some you know, some very unfortunate you know, kind of social construct issues there. Being a, a raised Catholic, I was I've, I've always been drawn to the social justice side of, of the religion, and I was really concerned about you know it really touched me because I had worked on a, on on farm bills uh, and have you know over this this span of these last couple of decades and. And I knew firsthand just just how hard it is to battle the kind of interests that were forcing this kind of change in India. So I got interested in hemp really on a social from, from a social justice perspective. You know, our farming operations are far enough west that uh, prior to 1937 and 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 then the 1937 uh, Marijuana Tax Act, which started the demise of the industry, you know, hemp really didn't get a toehold 
uh, that far west. So um, I didn't grow up around hemp, didn't grow up around any folklore of hemp. And uh, so it was a it was a real eye-opening experience for me once I started uh, educating myself about the crop based on this Indian story uh, about the, the plant and what we could do with it and, and, and uh, the sustainability portions around that. Our agricultural operations are over the Ogallala Aquifer. We've been, we've been with the drawing unsustainable amounts of water to grow federally subsidized crops like corn for years, uh, much to the demise of both the, our soils and our, and our water resources. And so hemp, hemp became something to me that was a, was a plausible alternative for our region uh, and, and, and just nationally uh, knowing the history of the plant. So that really started my journey, that little campfire, that little, uh, that little fateful visit around the campfire and started working in Colorado advocating for the hemp plant uh, in 2006 then. It was a few years before I was really able to focus on that. And in parallel, I, I've, I've always been involved in around policy and I've not been an elected official, but you know, advocacy around policy issues around rural sustainability and development. So started that journey in 2006 uh, in Colorado. And we were able to, over a span of uh, six years, do a lot of education uh, around the industrial hemp plant. We were part of our this Colorado's historic uh, Amendment 64 in 2012, which gave us, as farmers, the constitutional right to grow hemp. And so we were off to the races. Uh, you know, there's a, the, uh, I've given you the elevator pitch on that six years, but, you know, it, it took a concerted effort to do education and to bring people kind of into the circle of, of, of the, the mysteries of hemp and decades of, of myths and lies about the plant to really bring some acceptance into the agricultural community. So that led us to that, that passage of, of Amendment 64. As you mentioned earlier, Colorado has been the tip of the spear uh, from the beginning. Uh, we've been, been consistently one of the largest states uh, in terms of, of acreage and just sales, in large part led by the by our current governor, Governor Jared Polis, uh, who has uh, you know, been a real advocate, has a great vision for what hemp can do for our economy in, in value-added products. So um, we're, we're really blessed to have, you know, have his leadership and the, and the research institutions and the, and the support of the farming community in Colorado around, uh, you know, around developing uh, the plant. So I'm just curious, pre-hemp in your own personal life, did you go to college and get an ag degree or uh, did you learn everything kind of handed down from generation to generation? Well, I'm fifth generation of my family. I now have the seventh generation on, on, on the way. So a lot of it was you know growing up on the back of a tractor and on a horse and, and doing the things I did growing up. I did attend the University of Arkansas and came back to uh, Colorado and was you know active in the day-to-day operations of our family's uh, cattle feeding and, and uh, irrigated and dry land operations for a little over 20 years, uh, raised my kids there, and then really wanted to, to dive into policy. Even during those 20 years while I was on the, on the farm, I was the chairman of the planning commission for the county and, you know, always very involved in, in, the, in those kinds of constructs. But I saw the value of good public policy come to fruition when, when I helped in 2004 pass the Colorado's Amendment 37 campaign, which was a renewable energy mandate, which forced Colorado into, you know, into a very green direction on our energy and was in, uh, opened up the doors for our rural communities to have some opportunity to um, you know, participate 
in that development. So for me, even to, you know, then and, and today, everything's got to be rooted in good policy. And, and every good federal policy usually points back and starts with uh, something that's a good state policy. And every good state policy starts with something that happens in your backyard that you can take to a state legislature. So, you know, it's, it's, it, it's important. I'm, I'm really passionate about, you know, that you know, that part of it, we got to get, we have to get the policy right because we, we've lived, we lived eight decades of getting policy wrong with the Marijuana Tax Act of 37 and the Controlled Substances Act and the scheduling in 1969. And we lost eight decades of, of opportunity to take the wondrous properties of this plant and, uh, you know, turn it into value-added products uh, for for a global market. So I use those as the contrast of why what's bad policy and what's good policy. And it's certain their effects. Yes. And I'm hoping we can talk a little bit more as we kind of progress here about the historical aspects of <laughs> just ag policy in general, but very specifically hemp as well. But I'm wondering, you've mentioned a couple times the properties, you know, when we're trying to grow, say, cotton versus hemp, what is it about hemp that makes it such an amazing plant. Well, you know, it's really the, the multi-dimensional use of that. You have, I call it, you know, it's food, feed, fuel, fiber, bioplastics, building materials. I often say there's, you know, that this plant isn't a silver bullet, but a silver buckshot. And if you have a have a challenge or a, or a new opportunity, there's probably somewhere on that solution set where where some subcomponent of hemp can play a role. It's, it's not a a you know, one-trick pony. So it's got such vast potential, and and we're seeing that play out today. Whether it's the folks who are working in the hemp feed coalition, you know, for animal feed, and and we look at the omega oils from uh, that that are the byproduct of that for uh, of that hemp cake for you know health and nutrition. And we look at the the fiber that can be molded into. Uh, you know, plastic products were turned into a, a you know a competitive product to, um, and I would say a much more sustainable product to 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 cotton, and the bass that can be used for you know bioplastics and animal bedding and and uh, any number of things, and then you add all of that in, and added to all that uh, the ability of this plant to absorb enormous amounts of CO two in a in a production cycle in a in a time when we're looking for ways that agriculture, agriculture can play, you know, a mitigating role, you know, in climate change. So we've got a lot of opportunity here. And, uh, and, and we're much like, you know, the, the soybean, you know, let's, let's compare this to a soybean crop. 30 years ago, it would be hard to imagine what the soybean market might look like today. Soybeans were relatively new. There wasn't a lot of research. It didn't work everywhere. Um, and it took a sustained concerted effort, you know, over three, three to four decades to take that crop in, in particular and 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 see the amount of things that are being done with it today, we're on somewhat of the same path. We're we're rediscovering um, the many things we can do with that plant, and the opportunities and a value added you know bioeconomy um, that that we can do with this plant. So we'll I think we'll have a very a compressed time frame when we compare the two plants side by side. It's not going to take us forty years to to develop the kind of markets that they have. But similar, where we're, we're, we started out practically at zero again in, in 2014 uh, with the Farm Bill um, opening. 
and when and we're quickly trying to tackle policy and infrastructure and markets and on top of that in the middle of a pandemic so we're doing heroic work really on you know and trying to build this industry but uh, we've had our headwinds and when we've made some great strides even in, in light of all of that and you had mentioned soil and water before and uh, the work of Alan Savory. If we compare cotton uh, to hemp, well, why why is hemp, or maybe it's not, is hemp really better for capturing carbon, for climate change, and the soil regeneration, basically? Yeah. Well, I would argue, Carol, that, that hemp is a, a far superior product. Um, the challenge we've had is we have... Uh, a well-orchestrated and funded cotton lobby, which um, gives them a you know a number of advantages in the marketplace for growing the, the the federal subsidy safety nets and the in the participation of global markets that we don't we don't have yet. And I'd argue that the embedded carbon in in the just in, in the amount of chemicals uh, that we know that are being used in that industry of once if once accounted for, show a you know significant uh, footprint and and uh, effect on our on our CO two emissions inventory. So what we've got to do is to be able to compete head to head or compete with them. I don't I don't it, it, it's hard to say that we would compete with them at this point because you know they're a mature industry with a number of resources that we do not have. But I would say that an economy that is going to reward. Uh, products that are sustainable, that are soil building, that are regenerative by nature and bring a lot of societal benefits with it, um, that once we're able to capture those values in a, in a functioning marketplace, we'll, we'll be able to then, I'd say, I, I would use the word compete. You know, in the meantime, we're on this road alone from that perspective because we still need policy to, to get us to that point. And we're, we're, we're a long ways from there yet. We've, we've made two good strides in the 2014 and 2018 farm bills on, uh, you know, getting the door open and then descheduling. But uh, here we are still in 2021 and still have issues with bankers who don't like, uh, still nervous about the federal scheduling of cannabis and the mix, you know, and then the mixing of, 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 of hemp and marijuana in their minds. We have, we have just ordinary issues like that that still exist and uh, not being able to access, having full access to USDA rule development opportunities as well. We're getting there. We're, we're making strides, but we, um, we have a long way to go. We're going to take that midway point break here. We'll be right back with Michael Bowman and talk some more about hemp. I have so many questions. <laughs> <laughs> this is Art Stock. This is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy, and uh, we're here with Michael Bowman in talking about industrial hemp. You were mentioning, Michael, that, you know, there's so much more that can be done to really encourage the growth of industrial hemp. And some of the rules and regulations, I mean, we're so far behind because like, say, textiles, which is one of my favorite <clears throat> subjects, you know, how can we turn this amazing plant that's good for the soil and uses less water into textiles. Well, we have to have the infrastructure, the machinery, all of which has been, um, yeah, doesn't exist here anymore. So what what kind of laws and rules, uh, you mentioned some, I think it, it sounded like some funding opportunities that some crops have that hemp does not. 
And um, yeah, how did how the heck did we get here? <laughs> that's that's <laughs> a whole ball of wax right there. <laughs> well, the short answer on how did we get here is uh, when we conflated uh, hemp and marijuana in the, in the 1969 Controlled Substances Act uh, that Nixon put in place. So that really just was a death knell uh, for us. Prior to that, we had the Marijuana Tax Act in place, and it didn't really outlaw hemp, but it made it in, um, nearly impossible to, you know, to grow, except for that brief period of time during World War II when we had the Hemp for Victory campaign. Uh, hemp, you know, has been pretty much a non-starter for everybody, you know, since 1937, with that, with those, with that exception of those two years during the war. So we've gutted an industry um, over, you know, 80 plus years. And at the same time, we've, we've created an, an entire infrastructure, an entire set of federal safety nets for commodity crops that we have to compete with for, for the acres, right, to do what we want to do. If we want to have a substantial impact on, you know, in lowering agriculture's uh, CO2 emissions and, and creating the feedstock just uh, to make these products. We're competing with corn and soybean acres and wheat acres and, and, and acres that that have, uh, you know, are, are amongst those uh, well supported by federal policy right now and, and policy that's been in place for decades. So we've got to have a good story. Uh, we've got to sell our story to the consumer. I still think the strongest driver for us is going to be uh, an educated consumer. It's, 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 it shows like your own where we can talk to consumers. So when they say, when you go to the store, you know, look for a hemp blended product. Or when you look for Omegas, look for something that's hemp derived. Or if you're looking for, you know, fill in the blank, you know, help support the industry. Because I'm convinced that the generations the millennials and 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 particularly in that in that millennial space you know they vote with their pocketbook and they and they're they advocate with their with their purchases so that's going to be a big part of it uh, to help us get there i think the market will will be able to achieve something that policy won't be able to achieve on its own and now that we're we're on this path Maybe you can share a little bit of what we're already seeing in the way of light at the end of the tunnel, some success stories of folks doing amazing things with hemp. Yeah. Well, we have, you know, there's, uh, there, I'm going to mention a few. I've just, I, I, I've, I've just got a, such admiration for, for everybody that's in the space advocating. But if you look at, go to Idaho and look at what Maddie Mead with HEPA Texture is doing, he broke ground on a new facility to, to do value added with hemp fiber. And it's just done, Maddie's just done an you know, incredible job of advocating for the plant, doing it local, uh, looking, you know, finding that government, that local government support. And uh, so just doing, he's doing a great job. You look at uh, Chad Rosen, uh, Victory Hemp Foods over in Kentucky. Chad's really been leading the this pace here with um, hemp as a food ingredient and, you know, how we can, how we can move that into the nutrition space. Uh, so those are, you know, those are two examples in the, I would call the, the non-CBD world. And then in the fiber space and textile space, you have Barbara Philippone with EnviroTextiles, who's been a champion on this, on this, uh, on, on textiles for decades. She's just a treasure trove uh, of information. Um, I know Lawrence Serban with Hemp Traders here in California and Tony DeVaris, who was with uh, a researcher at uh, UC uh, Pomona, I believe. Uh, did some growing trials here in California this year that were successful. So we're, you know, we're, we're inching our way toward uh, understanding and how to grow the plant, but we still have a real gap in infrastructure. And, 
as you mentioned earlier, we talked about USDA rural development funds have often been that banker really for uh, for rural value added products um, for any number of crops. I, th- I do believe that they'll play a role, a significant role in building the infrastructure uh, for hemp. Uh, we've had a challenge post 2018 farm bill as, as, as states have have lagged in getting their state hemp plans approved. Uh, you know, until they do so, they aren't they they don't they can't have access to these USDA funds, and so there's a number of programs we want to tap. But um, it's just been a you know somewhat laborious process getting state plans approved, uh, so that we're really fully compliant and and can tap the fullness of those USDA funds. You mentioned COVID before. How has COVID hampered or helped here? <laughs> <laughs> well, we had, you know, we were we were moving through 2019, and I think we had a lot of inertia, you know, in the industry, as did all, everybody else in, in their own in their own respective sectors. But we ended up with a, you know, a tr- a overproducing, and and we were, and when I when we refer to 2019, we were basically a CBD industry. You know, we're we're around the edges. We're developing. You know, the, some of the things I just mentioned with, with food and fiber and, and doing some great strides on getting animal feed approved. But but basically, we're a CBD industry uh, that way overproduced in 2019. You know, COVID came along. We had a crash in the, in the market dollars. Uh, we saw a lot of people close their businesses, consolidate. And so we, we kind of we went through 2020 in large part on the on the. Uh, excesses of 2019's production and, and in 2021 you know, we still aren't quite geared up yet you know i'd give you my a, a perfect example of just from my own personal example we've been working with a number of black farmers in in selma in dallas county alabama uh, on a project that we've intended to do in 2020 we saw this is a the, the cbd market in particular and the and the high-end food market for for product um as a way to give them some real opportunity in their small plot land uh, there in Alabama. Um, and then we rolled into, we were getting ready to do it in 2020. COVID came along, you know, we couldn't travel, you know, we wanted this to be a success. The market crashed um, and it just, it, we just had to put everything on hold. And we, it, we, re- it, we remained on hold even through this year because we were just still, there were just still too many uncertainties at the beginning of the year. We hope that, you know, we'll be back on track, but, it just as one project that is not unlike, I'm sure, many others out there, uh, COVID really uh, upended a lot of plans and, and have extended them. And the barriers, are these just, I don't know, have we all been brainwashed to believe that somehow hemp is something other than what it is? I mean, what's what are the biggest barriers? Sounds like getting money and convincing folks that hemp is what it is <laughs> it, it is you know we have you know unfortunately uh we had the reefer madness campaign that started way back in the 30s and hemp just by association you know got lumped in you know that was further exasperated with its scheduling as a along with marijuana as a as a you know schedule one drug in 1969 and so what we've what we've built really is this bureaucratic inertia around lies right and myths 
that um, are is just just hard to overcome. And you know, as an as an example, in 2013 when we passed to Section 7006, you know, the Farm Bill, I had an American flag made for for then Congressman uh, Jared Polis, our, our now governor, to uh, have on the floor when he argued the the amendment. You know, as out of, out we know him. that all. Yes, yes, out of out of hemp. And didn't a, uh, Patagonia make a a movie about this? They did. Yes, Harvesting Liberty. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was a different flag than the one in the in the film, but we were able to. Um, I had that made and had it for the congressman, and then of course we we won the uh, the vote on the amendment. That was in June of 2013, and so I was able to orchestrate getting that flag flown over the Capitol on July 4th of that year. And we kept it quiet and then it broke in the newspapers uh, that there was a hemp flag flying over the Capitol. And it was a story that went around the world. If you could, there's some great stories on it. If you just Google my name, hemp flag, you, you'll have lots to read. But what happened was later that year, the then the, D, the then DEA administrator, Michelle Leonhardt, in a speech to the National Sheriff's Association, said that when she got up on the morning of July 4th and read that the hemp flag was flying over the U.S. Capitol, it was the worst day of her 33-year career mm. as a DEA agent. And she said, I'm against all illegal drugs, even the flag-making kind. Oh, now, I, I give you that story ignorant. just to show you, it's illustrative, <laughs> to show you just the challenges yeah. that we have oh in, in bureaucracy, you know. And uh, so even after, even after laws are passed through Congress and we've, Descheduled hemp, and we've done state plans, and we've moved down the road. Um, we still have these challenges um, internally in regulatory and bureaucratic scenarios. So you're 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 right. I mean, we have been we've been poisoned. Really, the general public has been poisoned over over what this plant is. Their minds have been poisoned, and. Uh, well, we have, in parallel, then created an entire safety net system for crops that that, that are less sustainable and ultimately provide probably less opportun- opportunity in a, from a value-added perspective mm-hmm. um, that, that, than that we have. So it, you know, it's just a little flavor of just the. When I say we still have headwinds, we've made a lot of we've made a lot of you know a lot of headway here just getting it. Uh, descheduled, yeah. but um, we've still got a long way to go. <laughs> so, how might folks find you if they're interested in, yeah, working in the space or connecting with you? Oh, sure. Um, my my email is the best way to catch me. It's uh, Michael uh, at my last name Bowman uh, dot ag, and uh, happy to to uh, interact with with uh, with anybody. It, it, it's, it takes all of us. It takes a team and a big team, and and uh, we've got some. Inc- Great advocates uh, in the space now, but we're we uh, we're going to have to continue to build that advocacy and build our support, and and it takes a lot of different talents to do that. Thank you so much for sharing your story, Michael, and thanks for doing what you're doing. Well, thank you for the opportunity, uh, Carol. Anytime. <laughs> this is Heartstock. We'll be back next week. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. See you then. Peace. As I went walking. Heartstock Radio is a production of KBMF 102.5 Butte America Radio. Hear our programs every Friday at 5 p.m. Mountain Standard Time via live stream at butteamericaradio.org.
Oh, 